on Colossians. And this is a great series looking at the greatness of Christ and what Christ has done for us, what we have, and how that impacts our lives uh, as we look at Christ. So we're going to continue. We're going to look in the Word. Uh, Michael, our lead pastor, is going to come up in just a moment uh, and bring the Word to us. But before that, I want to pray. And this morning, um, I want to pray not just for us here and for the Word, but I want to take a moment um, and pray uh, for Colorado uh, and for the community in Colorado this past week. If you guys have been paying attention to the news, you know the tragedy that struck uh, Colorado. And we believe that uh, we serve a God that is good, uh, that is near to us in our pain and in our suffering, um, and that He doesn't. things don't happen in this world that are beyond His redemption and His uh, activity in that to bring people to Himself. So I want to pray for this community um, in Colorado this morning. So if you will, bow with me. Father, we confess that you are a good and awesome God. That you are sovereign over our lives and over this world. This morning, we confess that you have broken sin in our lives and that through Christ you have brought us to yourself. We want to lift up Aurora, Colorado to you this morning those families and lives that have been struck by tragedy, pain, and death. Father, we ask that you, through your Holy Spirit, would be near to these families to provide comfort, to help them to, through this tragedy, see a glimpse of your love and your mercy that has been poured out. Father, I pray for the churches in that community that you would help them to come alongside these families, help them to love these families and to serve them. And I pray that these these churches and Christians in that little community, Father, that they would be the hands and feet of you serving these families. This morning, as we open your word, as Michael teaches from your word, pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to your spirit, that you would change us, that you would give us a glimpse of your greatness and your love. Father, that would transform the way we live. We ask all these things in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen. Well, good morning, Genesis. Good to see you guys. I missed, uh, I was gone last week, and I don't know what your experience is like when uh, you miss Genesis, but uh, I miss it a lot. So I'm super excited that we have good technology here to watch Genesis while you're missing either via the phone app or via the website, but uh, it's certainly not the same in just being here uh, with you in person. So I had a great uh, time of vacationing with uh, my family and her extended family, uh, her parents and cousins and such. Uh, I think my favorite part of the trip was driving back home because I got to swing through Columbus, Ohio, where me and my wife met at The Ohio State University. And I was able to take my dog, Buckeye, uh, which everyone in Ohio is like, oh, very clever. You named your dog Buckeye. How unoriginal. And I was like, but I live in Boston and no one knows what a Buckeye is. I was able to take my dog, Buckeye, and my son, Caden, to the Ohio State Stadium and got really close to the field and was able to cast some good vision for him. Of in about 2020, he will be leading the team out for battle uh, for Ohio State. So 
He was pretty excited. Uh, it was a great week, but excited to be back with you. As Jeremy mentioned, we started, uh, this is week number three in our series in Colossians. And really at the heart of this entire series is just this question for you and for me and for us as a church to wrestle with is, do you really believe that Jesus is enough? Do you really believe that if you have Jesus, you have everything? I think a lot of people would say, you know, intellectually, theologically, yes, I agree that if I have Jesus, I have everything, I, I have enough. But then if we just examine the way we live, there's often uh, a lot of Jesus plus this in hopes to, to get more. Um, a book that we have encouraged you to pick up and we're making available for you uh, is The Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything by Tullian uh, Chavinjian, um, who, when he wrote this book, uh, he was at a very uh, a hard time in his life. He was going through some serious trials, some serious suffering, and uh, the Lord led him to read the, the letter of Colossians. And as he was studying Colossians, he began uh, ultimately to pen this book, Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. And I want to read to you just a few different quotes uh, from this book because he expresses well really why we're doing this series and ultimately what my heart is for, for me and, and for you as well. He says this, I learned much more of what it means to be God-centered and gospel-saturated. I learned just how enslaved I was to lesser things and how Jesus had come to set me free. His conviction was, his realization, I should say, was he was giving himself to lesser things rather than giving himself to, to all of Jesus. And he goes on to say, the Apostle Paul wants us to be so radically impressed by all that Jesus is and to sense that the truth that anything else in our lives must seem remarkably minor by comparison. The idea is that as we consider the other things in our life, whether that could simply be things like our career, things like our status, things like money and possessions and notoriety and things like that, that all of those things that we often chase would just pale in comparison to who Jesus is and to all that we have uh, in Jesus. And he goes on to say further, he wrote them this epistle to show, the, to show support, I can't say this word, uh, of Christ over all human philosophies and traditions, all human opinions and preferences and personalities and accomplishments. It was a superiority, you know what it means, so overwhelming, so vastly devastating, so infinite, that we can hold fast unreservedly to this conclusion. And this was really his conclusion as he read through Colossians and ultimately penned this book. The conclusion being, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. My hope, my heart, my, my desire for all of us is that that would be our conclusion, that we would be convinced and live out that conviction that because I have Jesus and in light of who Jesus is, I have absolutely everything. But I think the challenge for all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, is daily we are tempted to believe that it's Jesus plus this. And if I just had a little bit more of this or a little bit more of that, then I would have everything. Uh, if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis in his book, that he wrote uh, called the Screwtape Letters. Uh, it was a letter from a senior demon named Screwtape uh, to a junior demon, and he was trying to train his junior demon in how to um, trip up or distract Christians. And this is what Screwtape is, is, says. Screwtape is telling the demon, Wormwood, 
that if he wants to distract Christians, if he wants to debilitate them, if he wants to keep them off course, powerless and ineffective, simply make sure they never come to a place of believing that mere Christianity is enough. What it means, mere Christianity, is simply bring them to a place of believing that Jesus is just not enough, that Christianity is not enough. And my heart and all the men that are going to be teaching in this series would be, you would have a place, come to a, con- a conviction, a conclusion, that if you have Jesus, you have absolutely everything. You have absolutely everything. You don't need to live a Jesus plus lifestyle. You can just live in light of who Jesus is. So two questions that we're asking today and we'll be asking throughout this series is, uh, what do we learn about Jesus in the section of Scripture that we're covering? So today we're covering Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 24 through 29. What is it we learn about Jesus in this section, these few verses? And then secondly, the question is, how do we actually apply what we just learned about Jesus to how we live? And certainly there's application for how we individually live and live out our walk with Jesus. But I also want to keep pushing us to how does what we just learned about Jesus impact how we as a church, we as a community, live and operate? And so this morning I'm going to share two things uh, in these few verses of what we learn about Jesus and then a few different applications of how we apply that. Number one, I encourage you to write these down. There's cards in front of you with pens. Uh, number one is simply this. Not simply, but uh, powerfully this. Uh, Jesus is worth suffering for. Number one, we're going to look at the text here in a second. Number one is Jesus is worth suffering for. And before I read the section of Colossians, let me just ask you the question. Do you actually believe that there's anything in your life that's worth suffering for? Do you believe that in your life right now that there's something that you'd be willing to endure, maybe physical, mental, emotional, relational hardship for? Do you believe that there's something or someone you'd be willing to endure persecution? I mean, like physical persecution uh, for mockery, rejection. I think when we think of suffering, most of us, honestly, run away from it, try to avoid it uh, at, at all cost. But what I see in the Apostle Paul is not only does he say, yes, there is something, specifically someone worth suffering for, but more than that, we can actually rejoice in the suffering for him. Uh, again, number one, Jesus is worth suffering for. Colossians says it like this. Uh, start at verse 24. Now I rejoice, okay? I rejoice in what was suffered for you. Ever have a sentence like that where you just said, you know what, I'm suffering for you and I love it. I'm rejoicing. I'm delighting in, not saying it's easy, but I delight. I'm rejoicing in the suffering that I have for you. And that's what Paul says. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Verse 25, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Verse 26, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but now is now disclosed to the saints. Paul says that he rejoices in what he has suffered for the Colossian church. I feel like that's a pretty amazing, bold thing to say is, I'm suffering for you, and I rejoice because of that. So the obvious question is, why is it, or how is it possible that Paul, 
is actually rejoicing in his suffering. And I'll offer two things, uh, and these apply to how we understand and how we actually approach suffering. And if you've never suffered, you will. You will go through times, maybe short times, short seasons, but we will all go through periods of suffering, seasons of suffering. And this is two reasons why Paul in Colossians can say, I, I rejoice in my suffering. And number one would be this. He sees the benefit of his suffering. He sees the benefit of his suffering. As he considers why he is suffering and he looks forward to what's happening because of his suffering, he sees two things happening. The name of Jesus is actually getting proclaimed even more and people who are Christians are being encouraged, inspired to be more bold with their, their uh, faith in Jesus. So as he considers his suffering, he sees that there's great benefit in it. I think most people, when they consider their suffering, they see that it's senseless. They don't see a point to it. They don't see a purpose in it. And so it leads to great despair, discouragement, depression. But for Paul, he says, no, I rejoice because I see the benefit of my suffering. It's benefiting you. It's benefiting the church. Uh, there's a great letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, and he wrote it from prison. And he says this about his suffering. Now, I want you brothers, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Again, he looks at his suffering, he considers his suffering, and he sees two things. I'm able to have a greater platform to say something about Jesus, to make much of Jesus. And then secondly, he sees that his witness, his testimony, his suffering for Jesus is actually inspiring, encouraging other peoples to suffer alongside him. Again, if you suffer and you don't see the point or purpose, it's, it's senseless. That leads to great despair and discouragement, not rejoicing. But for Paul, saw the benefit in his suffering. And the second reason of why uh, I see that Paul rejoices or can rejoice in his suffering, number one, he sees the benefit, and number two, he sees that his suffering is actually drawing him closer to Jesus. His suffering is actually drawing him closer, more in a deeper, intimate relationship with Jesus because of his suffering. Now, Paul said, uh, and this is kind of, if you read it just the first time, you're like, what the heck does that mean? Paul says, he was filling up in his flesh what was still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. So the obvious question is, what does he mean in saying this? What does Paul mean when he says, I'm filling up in his flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's suffering or Christ's afflictions? Before I answer what it means, let me say clearly what it does not mean. Paul is not saying that the suffering of Christ was somehow incomplete or insufficient that his suffering is adding to the suffering of Jesus, therefore it is now complete. Jesus made pretty clear from the cross, it is finished. And Paul in Colossians and in all of his other letters in the New Testament makes clear that what Jesus did was completely sufficient. So he's clearly not talking about adding to the suffering of Christ, but what I see Paul is actually doing, what he's saying, is that by virtue of his relationship, by virtue of his union, with Christ, he is enduring the persecution and affliction that Jesus otherwise would have experienced. And another way to say that is his suffering for Jesus 
Paul is filling up the afflictions that would be otherwise intended for Jesus. Jesus made pretty clear throughout the Gospels, and he said in Mark 13, all men will hate you because of me. All men will hate you because of me. So Paul sees his suffering, his persecution, his chains, as actually drawing him closer to Christ. And what I love about what Paul sees or is experiencing is he doesn't suffer apart from Christ. He doesn't suffer alone, as it were. If you remember Saul, uh, Paul, before he came, let me say that again. Saul, before he came Paul, was the guy who was persecuting the church. He was literally agreeing with murdering Christians and trying to stop this thing called Christianity. And he has this amazing encounter with Jesus. And Jesus uh, appears to him in a light in Acts 9 and says this, He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Well, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now, Saul must have been somewhat confused because he's like, I'm not persecuting you, Jesus. In my opinion, you're dead. So I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting the people who claim to know you, the people who claim that you're alive, the people that claim to follow you. But Jesus says, no, Paul, you're actually persecuting me. And so Paul's suffering his persecution because of the name of Christ. He was suffering with Christ. There was a a connection, a bond that uh, Paul was growing closer and closer to Christ because of his suffering. Now, why was he able to say, I rejoice? Well, able to say, I rejoice, because he saw the benefit of his suffering, and he saw that his suffering was actually leading Paul closer and closer to Christ. Now, let me ask you a question, make it personal for you, about suffering. Is your suffering connected to the mission and the message of Jesus? Is the suffering that you go through in your life Uh, or have gone through in your life, is it connected? I mean, a direct correlation because of your commitment to the mission and the message of Jesus. Because when we see Paul talking in the New Testament about suffering, it's always tied to his service of Jesus, him being a literally a servant of the gospel. And because he's a servant of the gospel, he's a minister of the gospel, he's suffering in chains because of that. And so I wanted to ask, is your suffering actually tied to or connected to the mission and the message of Jesus going forth from you? Now, this is not an exhaustive list of why people suffer, but I'll give you three reasons why people suffer is, well, people use their freedom to do evil, to choose evil. As Jeremy mentioned as we prayed for the massacre that happened in Colorado, someone used his freedom to choose the path of evil. And anytime someone chooses the path of evil and destruction, there are, there's suffering all around. So there's suffering because there's evil in the world. And there's people who choose to do evil things. God did not tell that individual, pick up a gun and go shoot people. That man used his, his free will to choose evil. There's suffering because of that. Another reason people suffer, and to be honest with you, I think this is, a lot of our suffering is tied into our sin and just self, selfish decisions and choices we make. A lot, anytime we sin, anytime we're just pursuing the path of self at center, there will be suffering because it's just not the life God wants us to live. 
So those are two reasons they're suffering. And then Paul makes the connection is that if you connect, align yourself with the mission and message of Jesus, there will be suffering. So again, to repeat the question, is your suffering actually tied into your service of Jesus? Paul was pretty clear that I am a servant of Jesus. I'm one who is proclaiming the mysteries of God, proclaiming the full word, the message of the gospel to all people. That's, the, that's what he was entrusted with. Because of that, he suffered. Now, my desire is that for you, for me, our suffering would be actually connected to our commitment to the gospel. That we would suffer because we're making much of Jesus. We're seeking to build others up. We're seeking to encourage other people. We're seeking to, to live literally our lives on mission for Jesus proclaiming him, and because of that, we are suffering. But the reality is it's pretty hard to rejoice in suffering in service to Jesus if we're not actually serving Jesus. You can't rejoice in suffering in service if you're not actually in service. So the obvious question is, are you serving Jesus? Do you see your life as, I am serving Jesus? Now, a very practical, hopefully helpful way to think about serving Jesus is rather than be inspired today and be like, ah, I'm so excited to go suffer in service to Jesus and I'm just going to find somewhere where I can serve just so I can start suffering. And you start literally, you know, Googling where do I serve. I want you to consider you serve where you are. It's very simple, but I believe God has literally planted and placed you where you are. And too many times we don't like where we are, and so we miss the opportunities that God is providing for us where we are. And I would love for you to see where you are right now in life, where God has planted and placed you, your job, your career, whatever it is, you are there because God has placed you there. He's positioned you there because he wants to use you there to accomplish his will in your life and in the lives of those around you. Too many people kind of approach their work, their job, where they spend a majority, 40, 50, 60 hours of their week, just kind of resenting of, I don't want to be here. I'm just here for a paycheck. And we miss the opportunity of serving where Jesus has placed us. So this might not be a new thought, but I hope it's a transformational thought of serve where you are right now. Don't wait for that great opportunity where you think, well, if I get this and I go there and I do this, then I can start serving. Start serving exactly where you are. And I think for me, practically what this means, wherever you work, wherever you spend a majority of your time, 30, 40, 50, 60 hours a week, whatever it is, you're the one who has the best work, work ethic. You're the one who is the most faithful. You're the one who works the hardest. You're the one who refuses to cut corners or participate in shady deals. You're the one who refuses to use people or walk over people or manipulate people. You're the one who puts an end to things like gossip where other people are being hurt. You don't just walk away from it, but you actually stand up. You're the one who stands up for those who are not or cannot defend themselves. You're the one who works hard to help those around you succeed. You're the one who is the first person to offer forgiveness and to be gracious to others when they wrong you or wrong others in your community. You're not the one who holds grudges. You're the one who is gracious and generous with your forgiveness. You're the one who is quick to seek forgiveness when you've hurt someone, when you've wronged someone. 
Like this is just a small list here. It's not exhaustive. But my point is, as you do these things, as you be that one in increasing ways, you are serving Jesus where you are. And people will take note of what is so different about you. You're not like anyone else here. You're not just working for the paycheck. You're not just putting in your time. You genuinely care about us and people. You stand up for people. You're loyal. You're faithful. You have integrity. And you now have a new platform of why? Because of Jesus. And if there happen to be any other Christians in your community, which I realize there's not always the case, you're now inspiring other Christians that are around you to do the same. You might suffer for it, but what I'd want you to see is it is worth suffering in service to Jesus. That's the first point. Jesus is worth suffering. We don't suffer just because of our sin and selfishness. If we suffer, man, let it be for our service to the mission and the message of Jesus. So serve where you are. Serve where you are. Now for Paul, it's, you have to ask the kind, of, kind of the question of, well, Paul, why was Paul willing to suffer in service to Jesus? There must be something pretty unique about Jesus, something special, something different, where Paul says, you know, he is worthy to suffer for. So the question is, why? What is it about Jesus? And this is the second thing, and this is the last point. Number two. So if number one is Jesus is worthy to suffer for, number two, Jesus is the mystery of God revealed. He's the hope of glory. I'm going to unpack what that means, but I just want you to see that. Jesus is the mystery of God revealed, the hope of glory. Why is Jesus worthy to suffer for? Well, right there. Because no one else could say that. No one else could say they are the mystery of God revealed, that they and they alone are the hope of glory. But in Jesus, this is why Jesus is worth following, worth worshiping, and certainly worth suffering for. Paul says in Corinthians, or I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 1, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope, of glory, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which, is so, which so powerfully works in me. I love Paul. declares that Jesus is the mystery of God finally revealed. That Jesus is the hope of glory. Now, what does that really mean when Paul is saying, mystery of God, he's the hope of glory? It is, uh, it is to say that Jesus is the one that reconciles sinful man, both Jew and Gentile, back to God. Jesus is the one who does that. Jesus is the one that brings us into future glory. Future glory means heaven. That Jesus is the one who takes us to be with him where he is in a place called heaven, in a place the Bible refers to as paradise, where we will be with God, we will be his people, he will be our God. Jesus is the one who is our future glory. And Paul also makes clear Jesus is not only brings us into glory, but he actually is our glory. This is another way of just simply saying Jesus is everything for everyone. Mystery of God revealed 
hope of glory. Jesus is absolutely everything for everyone. Now, Paul's using this language of mystery. What is so mysterious about Jesus that he is the mystery revealed? Well, for the Jewish people, they prided themselves on being the people of God who inherited the promises of God. They knew that God had promised them a Redeemer, a Savior, a Messiah. God sent them a Redeemer, Messiah, Savior in Jesus. But the Jews also knew, as well as the Gentiles, by the way, if you don't know what a Gentile is, if you're not Jewish, then you're Gentile. The Jews knew that God had a plan of salvation for the Gentiles, but it was very unclear of, we know we're the chosen ones, but Old Testament speaks about the Gentiles and salvation, so how does that actually, how is that going to happen? And the mystery is that the Jews and the Gentiles in Jesus brings the Jews and the Gentiles actually together. That salvation is not just for the Jews on their own, but salvation because of Jesus, the mystery of God revealed. This is the mystery. Jesus saves both Jew and Gentile. Now, I'd encourage you to read this a little bit more uh, on your own today, but in Ephesians, it talks about this mystery of how Jews and Gentiles who are hostile to one another, they did not like one another. What Jesus is doing is bringing those two together. He says, uh, Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 3, start at verse 4. In reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, through Jesus, through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Now, that might be a little bit lost on us because we're not first century Jews. But this to them would be absolutely shocking that Jews and Gentiles are fellow citizens, fellow heirs, fellow sharers, bless you, of the glory of God. That they too are experiencing the salvation that the Messiah, meaning Jesus, has provided. Jesus is everything to everyone. That's the mystery revealed. Provide salvation for both Jew and for Gentile. Now, the question that uh, you have to wonder, if you, if you remember reading in, in Colossians uh, chapter 1, verse 27, Paul uses this word, the glorious riches. Like, why is Paul so fired up about this? Why is this so amazing to Paul? Why is this news that the mystery has been revealed and it's Jesus and he saves both Jews? Like, why is that so glorious? Why is that so rich, so amazing to Paul? Paul answers that question, which he says, the mystery which is Christ. But guess where Christ is? Christ is in you. Paul is so amazed that the mystery is revealed that Christ is not far off He's not distant, he's not close, he's not around you, he's not behind you, he's not in front of you. The mystery of God is Christ is in you. We weren't just saved from afar and then brought to God. Jesus came, Savior, Redeemer, Messiah. But Paul makes so clear that the mystery is Christ is actually in you. 
Now, for some, that might be kind of weird. How is it possible that Jesus is in me? What does that really look like to have Jesus in me? Clearly, the physical body of Jesus is not in you. What Paul is talking about is the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, if you are a Christ follower, a Christian, resides in you. If you receive, accept Jesus as God, confess Him as Savior, as Lord, God literally plants in you His Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. The Scripture refers the Holy Spirit. Again, you can read a little bit more of this uh, later, but in Romans 8, the whole chapter is really devoted to what it means to have the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God residing in us. He says in verse 9, You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. Meaning, if you're controlled by the Spirit, that means the Spirit of God is living in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ... He does not belong to Christ. If you're missing the, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, it's because you're not a Christian. It's not because you haven't done something to merit or earn it. If you are a Christian, a follower of Jesus, gift of God to you, to, to me, to all of us, is we have the Spirit of Christ. And because we have the Spirit living in us, that Spirit causes us to live life so differently. And I want to just finish with this question of practically speaking, if Jesus, the hope of glory, really lives within me, what does that mean for how I live? If Jesus, and you know Jesus, and have Jesus, and receive Jesus, you've got the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit in you, how does that impact how you live? What does that practically look like? What difference should it make? And I'm going to offer you just two, not exhaustive, considering what Paul has said. And I encourage you to write this, these two down, but this first one is huge. Number one would be of what difference the Spirit makes, the Spirit of Christ, is we are freed from living an ism type of life. Ism is spelled I-S-M. We are freed from living an ism type of life. Pick your ism, but perfectionism, moralism, spiritualism, traditionalism, legalism... We are freed. If Christ is in me, I am now set free from living an ism type of life. And this is the ism type of life says, if you do this or perform in this manner, God will not only accept you, but you will become closer to Christ through your ism. Meaning if you are morally and you do you know, come up to, to whatever the moral standard is that you've created, or if you adhere to your traditions, as it were, if you do that, then somehow you are actually closer to Christ. Or if you're more spiritual, as it were, somehow you'll get more accepted in God's eyes or somehow closer to Christ. But if Jesus is in you, I want you to, to hear this and know this. Because Christ, the hope of glory, lives in me, there's nothing I can do to get more of Jesus into me than he already is. That, to me, is awesome. There is nothing that I can do to get more of Jesus into me than he already is. That frees me from the lies that I often believe that if I do this, I'll get more of Christ. That's, that's ridiculous to even think that, 
because your line of thought would be, well, I only have like 60% of Jesus. And the other 40% of Jesus is going to come to me when I do my isms, when I perform, when I behave, when I'm moral, when I observe my traditions that I've created. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of Christ in you in its most fullest sense. So because I already have all of Christ in me, I'm set free from trying to get more of Christ in me through good behavior or performance. Let me say it like this to hopefully drive home the point. At this moment, if you are a Christian, I mean at this moment in time, you'll never have more of Christ in you than you do right now. That's awesome. It's just now becomes a question of will you experience, embrace, enjoy Christ fully in you? If there's nothing you can do to get more of Christ in you, you know what that also means? There's nothing you could do to get some of Christ out of you. Yes, when we sin, there's consequences of our sin, but sin does not kick Jesus out of my life. Sin does not cause the Holy Spirit to leave me, and then when I do something, He comes back into me. This truth for me has been so transformational. Because I was the guy who lived a better part of his Christian experience thinking if I did something, if I performed, if I acted more moral, more spiritual, that I would get more of Christ. And this one truth has just so set me free of, I have all of Christ already. It's a question of, will I enjoy and embrace the fullness of Christ at work in me? Tullian says it like this uh, in his book, Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. I used to think that growing as a Christian meant I had to somehow go out and obtain the qualities and attitudes I was lacking. To really mature, I needed to find a way to get more joy, more patience, more faithfulness, and so on. And then I came to the shattering realization that this isn't what the Bible teaches, and it isn't the gospel. What the Bible teaches is that we mature as we come to a greater re- we mature as we come to a greater realization of what we already have in Christ. We don't mature in our relationship with Christ by doing more, performing more, working harder more. We come to a full maturation in Christ when we realize, as Tolian said, uh, we already have Christ in us at work in us. So that's number one of what does it mean that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives in you? It sets you free. It sets you free. And the second point I'd share is this. Because the Spirit of Jesus, this Holy Spirit of God, lives, resides in us, we are empowered to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus to everyone. We are empowered now to make much of Jesus in, in how we live, in what we say, and how we act. Because Christ is living in me, Christ is empowering me to live the Christ-like life. Again, Tully in his book, Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything, said this, We're suddenly freed and empowered to live a life of outrageous generosity, unrestrained sacrifice, uncommon boldness, unbounded nerve. This miracle is possible because of our being united with Christ. Because of Christ, I'm empowered to live a Christ-like life, empowered to be so generous, empowered to be so gracious, so forgiving, so loving, so kind. 
Why? Because Christ is in me. And I'm not making it up. I'm not forcing this. Christ in me is empowering me to be Christ-like to the world around me. Specifically, empowering me to be bold in living, preaching, proclaiming the message of Jesus to everyone. Now, if you've been hanging around Genesis for more than a week, uh, you hear a lot of talk about gospel, 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 gospel. And at some level, and I've had people ask, like, you talk a lot about the gospel, and I'm starting to lose, like, what is the gospel again? Because the conception is the gospel is what saves us, and then we have to do other things in order to, like, live out our life in, in God, in Christ. And what I've been learning just afresh over these last few years is the gospel is not just news that gets us started with God. The gospel is what sustains my relationship with God. That's why we talk about the gospel. Uh, a book that I had our leadership team read uh, last year was uh, called A Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent. And he said this, God did not give us his gospel just so we could embrace it and be converted. Actually, he offers it to us every day as a gift that keeps on giving to us everything we need for life and godliness. The gospel is Jesus. What we need for salvation, what we need to live a saved lifestyle is Jesus. The gospel is who is Jesus? What has Jesus done? What has he accomplished? How did he accomplish? What is Jesus doing now? The gospel is all about Jesus. That's why we preach, proclaim, make much of the gospel. Timothy Keller has um, just written many awesome, awesome books. Uh, but he said this about the gospel. Uh, and this is really just challenged, inspired, and encouraged me in how I understand the gospel. He said this, We never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something more advanced. We never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something more advanced. Let me just stop there. I've met too many Christians, and to be honest with you, I was one who used to say, okay, I've heard the gospel. I want something more. Give me more meat. Give me more substance because I totally get Jesus died on a cross. Let's move on to higher, more elevated thinking, more mature thinking. And what Timothy Keller says, we never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something more advanced. Why? The gospel is not the first step in a stairway of truths. Rather, it is more like the hub in a wheel of truth. The gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, but it is the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we all progress in the kingdom. Paul loved the gospel. Isn't it odd that all of his letters, he's always talking about the gospel of Jesus. That should tell us something that what we need more than anything for salvation and for life this side of heaven is the gospel. There is no higher truth. Everything is Jesus. And that's why we preach, proclaim this gospel. Now, again, what does a spirit of Jesus empowered life look like? You're freed from the isms. You're freed from trying to live a life to get more of Christ in you because he's already fully in you. And secondly, you're literally empowered to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus to everyone. Now, Paul made pretty clear in his life that this was not an easy lifestyle. I love how he said in verse 29, 
To this end, I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. You kind of get the picture that Paul is saying, this is really hard work. It's not easy being an ambassador for Jesus. It's not easy living a Christ-like lifestyle. To this end, I labor. And what is he laboring for? Everything that we just read in Colossians chapter 1. To make much of Jesus. To proclaim Jesus in its fullest sense. To help believers mature to to Christ-likeness. I think what happens is a lot, I've been there myself, I've seen a lot even in our church, is a lot of people set out and say, I want to do this. I want to be that ambassador. I want to be bold with my my faith. And I want to live that missional lifestyle where I'm just making much of Jesus. I'm talking about Jesus to Christians, non-Christians. I'm just talking to Jesus. And we, we get going and like a day in, a weekend, maybe a month in, something happens. You just get tired. You get literally burned out. And you're like, man, I need a break from all this Jesus stuff. I just need to chill out. I just need to rest. Well, the reason that we get to that point of burnout where we just like, man, I need to check out for a time is because that lifestyle that we're trying to live is we're trying to do it on our own. We're trying to make much of Jesus in our own strength rather than relying on the strength that Jesus is providing for us. Why? Because he lives, he resides within us. The secret to Paul's perseverance was that he relied on Christ to be powerfully at work within him. Another commentator said this of Paul, the ultimate antidote to the burning out of the human spirit is the burning in of the divine. Like Paul really got the divine, meaning Jesus was so burned into him that what was coming out of him was Christ, in Christ's power. And again, in verse 20, struggling with all his energy. I'm struggling, but not with my energy. I'm struggling with his energy that is so powerfully at work in me. So as you're trying to live the Christian life, as you're trying to be freed from the isms, as it were, as you're trying to live a life that is boldly proclaiming, making much of Jesus, are you doing it in your strength? Now, not to be misunderstood here, the the challenge, Jesus is not saying, hey, you try as hard as you can, and when you get to the end of yourself and you've worked hard enough, I'll kick in and fill in what you couldn't do. No, the challenge is, no, we work and we struggle, but because Christ is in us, it's his energy, it's his strength, it's his power that's working through us. So as you're going about it, Are you doing it in your strength or the strength of Christ at work in you? What difference does the hope of glory living in you make? What difference does Jesus literally residing in you, his spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, free, completely free from trying to live to get more of Jesus in you? Why? Because you already have all of Jesus in you if you're a Christian. And secondly, what difference does it make you're completely empowered to boldly live the gospel lifestyle, to boldly proclaim the gospel to anyone and everyone, non-Christians and Christians. What I love about Paul and what I see in Paul is he was just always talking about Jesus to Christians or non-Christians. It wasn't like there was a switch of, oh my gosh, there's a non-Christian here. I better put on my Jesus tongue. If he was with Christians, he was talking about Jesus. If he's with non-Christians, he's talking about Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is in him and empowering him 
to speak, to live the Christ-like, gospel-centered lifestyle. Rather than finish with the challenge of who should you go boldly proclaim the gospel to, I wanted just to finish with the, the last question, uh, which is simply uh, this question. As you would go from here, actually not a question, more of a challenge. As you go from here, my challenge, my exhortation, my charge to you, and it's a charge from Jesus to you, from Scripture to you, is for you to go out and live a gospel-centered lifestyle. That you would leave this place with a commitment to say, I'm because the hope of glory lives in me, because Jesus is worthy of suffering for my commitment or the charge to you live like you have the divine living in you. Live like you have the divine living in you, meaning you have Jesus living in you, empowering you to live the gospel-centered life. Practically speaking, what does that mean? What, do you, what does that look like? You be active in sharing the gospel to yourself. The first person that needs to hear the gospel every single day is not your wife, your kids, your neighbor, your coworker. The first person who needs to hear the gospel preached every single day is the person who looks at you in the mirror. Be active in sharing the gospel, preaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, reminding yourself of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and because Jesus lives in you, what that means. That means you have another day where you don't have to try to work harder for Jesus to get more of Jesus in you. Preach the gospel to yourself every single day. Remember who Jesus is, Jesus in you. That's the first person who needs to hear the gospel every single day. It's you. Secondly, of what does it look like to live with the divine living in you is you would be active in sharing the gospel with everyone. And I'm not making a distinction here between someone who's a Christian and someone who's a non-Christian. We are active in talking about sharing Jesus, the gospel, with anyone we come into contact. Why? Because we've got a lot to say. Why? Because Jesus lives in me. And Jesus is doing great things. I love how Paul uh, admonishes his uh, young son of the faith, uh, Philemon. He says, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Active in sharing your faith, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, so that you're going to have a full understanding of every good thing you have in Jesus. I think a, a reason, a primary reason, many of us struggle to think we have anything good going on in our lives is because we're not talking about Jesus. And the more I talk about Jesus to Christians and non-Christians, to anyone and everyone, it reminds me, oh my gosh, that's what I have in the gospel. That's what I have in Jesus. Live like you have the divine living in you. Preach the gospel to you every day when you wake up, remind yourself, and then throughout the day, be active in talking about Jesus. Man, it's amazing as you go from here from church, how easy we can transition from worship through song and, and preaching and celebrating communion to not having conversations that are about Christ, to have conversations about, hey, what are you doing this afternoon? You know, let's go do this. And no, have conversations that are all about Christ and what Christ is doing, what, 
what Christ is revealing. It's not to say it's sinful to talk about your plans for the day. But it is to challenge you, are you active in talking about Christ with your Christian friends? With your non-Christian friends? Jesus is worthy of suffering for because Jesus is the hope of glory. Again, we are driving home the fact, the truth, that Jesus is everything. He is enough. That he is enough. And those are two more reasons why Jesus is enough. Why we don't have to settle for lesser things, but we can give all of ourselves, all of the time, over to all of Jesus, because Jesus is living in me. Father God, thank you for just the men and the women that are here today. God, I just believe uh, with all my heart that you have literally brought every single person here that you wanted to be here uh, to hear from you. And God, now I pray that we would respond to what it is that you have been speaking to us about. Jesus, I give thanks for these amazing truths that have been revealed to us in these just few verses in Colossians chapter 1. Jesus, I give thanks that you are worthy to suffer for. God, I pray that we would not suffer because of a sin, but we would suffer in our service to you wherever we are. God, if there's someone or many people who aren't serving you at all right now, God, I pray that you would lead them, inspire them, encourage them to serve you where you've placed them. Jesus, I just give thanks for, again, the revelation that you are the hope of glory. You are everything. You are everything we need all of the time. Jesus, what an amazing truth that you live, reside within us. Please, please continue to empower those who are Christians today to live like we have the divine living in us. God, I pray that you would use us to encourage and inspire other Christians. God, I pray that you would use us to encourage and inspire those who don't know Jesus and who he is to make that decision to become a Christ follower. I encourage you just to take some time uh, as we worship through song, as we worship through communion, just to sit with what God's been saying to you and then respond. If you're a Christian, we celebrate communion every single week at Genesis because Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, told his disciples, when you do this, when you celebrate this meal and you remember, when you take the bread, you are remembering that this is my body that was broken for you. And when you dip the bread in, in, in the wine or the juice, that is remembering that Christ's blood was shed for you, for the forgiveness of sins, the purification. So if you're a Christian and you, celebrate, and you would celebrate communion today, do so remembering what Jesus has done for you. And because he's done that, you have everything, absolutely everything. And if you're not a Christian, if you've been here today and you've been hearing all of this talk about Jesus, well, guess what? Today is your day to become a Christian. Today is your day to take that step forward and say, I'm placing my faith no longer in lesser things, but I see that Jesus is everything. And what he's done is sufficient. And all of you and all of Jesus. I've asked some of our leaders to come up and who will be just at the corners if you'd like to pray, to learn how do I become a Christian? What, is, what does that mean? 
come and share with them your desire to become a Christian. If there's something going on in your life that you just want them to pray for you about, come and do so. But as you're ready, if you're a Christian, come and celebrate communion today, giving thanks.